Good morning, friends. It was really, really good to worship with you this morning. Um, if you haven't been to church in a while, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I've missed it. I've missed you. I've missed being together. Uh, oh, my goodness. I got to worship this morning in the singing, and I was feeling it then, and then I did it again, and I was like in tears, and that's just, I don't know. I'm just grateful, and, and I love it. Uh, I will admit, though, that this morning I'm a little bit uh, nervous. I pro- probably scared is honestly probably the better word to use for preaching this message. I'm not really afraid of the, the content as much as I am of the, the consequences, if I'm being honest. And it's not the first time that I've preached this particular message. Um, it's not going to be the last time that I preach this message. This is a message that God's asked me to share before, something he wants me to share now. I know he's going to ask me to share this very similar message in the future. But every time that I do, I'm still a little bit of a, afraid. Um, I'm afraid that when the time comes to actually do what we're going to talk about, that it, it's going to fail. Or I'm afraid that when the time comes, um, we're not going to do it as quick as I said that we were, and I'm going to be called out as a fraud. I'm afraid that when the time comes, I'm not going to want to pay the price, the cost, the sacrifice that it's actually going to take to do this thing that God's asked me to talk about this morning. I'm afraid at times that maybe I'm getting ahead of God or that I'm doing it out of selfish ambition rather than really what he is calling me to. Uh, Truth is, it's also the reason, ironically, that I'm scared not to preach this message. If you're ever going to do something really, really hard, it's always beneficial to tell a group of your friends that you're going to do it ahead of time so you don't wuss out in the moment, right? Uh, A couple years ago, I had the privilege of going to Zambia for a little over a week. And I knew that the last day of our trip, we were going to be driving to Livingston because that's the place we were going to fly out from the next day. And in Livingston, they have Victoria Falls. It's literally one of the world's largest waterfalls. Uh, It is absolutely breathtaking, stunning, beautiful. They call it uh, thunder and smoke because it's so loud and there's so much mist coming up. Uh, You get wet just going to visit the place. And Uh, It drops off uh, on one side down to the Zambezi River about, I don't know, three, four hundred feet. There is a bridge that spans between the gorge. One side is Zimbabwe, the other side is Zambia, and the bridge is actually the, like, checkpoint to get through. The bridge is over 400 feet above the floor with the Zambezi River running beneath it, and they have one of the world's most beautiful and biggest bungee jumps there. Now, I hate heights. Like, I'm not even playing. I hate, like, I'm petrified of heights. Okay, you get me up on something that's kind of tall, even a tall ladder. (laughs) I'll start feeling, like, not good in my stomach. I start getting a a little bit of vertigo, and, like, you lose your balance. Like, that's not the place to get vertigo. You know what I'm saying? Like, you need your balance if you're up on a cliff. But that's how I am. I don't like heights. But one of our Scott family uh, values is we do hard things. Excuse me while I COVID cough over here. Talking too much. So I said, I'm going to do this. Now, I'd never been on a bungee jump before (laughs) for good reason, okay? But I was like, I'm going to do this one. So I knew 
Yeah, that's like legit. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm not playing. So I, 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 uh, I tell my friends when we get there, um, about halfway through the week, hey, I'm going to do the bungee jump. Now, when we got to Victoria Falls, I kind of hoped that they had forgotten because I wasn't talking about it. We saw the falls, and then about, after a little while, they're like, hey, you're going to do the jump, right? We need to head over there so you can do the jump. I'm like, crap, they remembered. <laughs> so we walk over. Now, I will tell you, there's a couple things that, that helped me to actually do it. Uh, number one, they didn't tell me, thankfully, that four years earlier, an Australian woman had jumped off and the rope snapped. No joke. You can look it up on YouTube. She barely survived after falling into the water. And the other thing is that they make you pay your money before you ever get close to the bridge. So you can't see it before. And I'm like, they, you sign the waivers, you pay the money, and then you walk over and see what you got to do. It's absolutely terrifying, but I did it. You hear me screaming then. What you don't hear is after I jumped and did the like running man for about the first second or two, I literally was going. The message that I'm going to give you this morning is not the jump. That's coming in a couple years. This is us telling our friends that we're going to do it when the time comes. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This is actually a fairly familiar passage of Scripture if you grew up going to church. It's a really powerful passage of Scripture, but I never heard the full context until just a couple years ago. Matthew chapter 16, let's start reading in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? So that was referencing himself. He's like, Hey, who do people say that I am? So the disciples say, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So there's some folks at the time, they heard about Jesus. They're like, yo, that must be, he must be like John the Baptist. Like, that's the same dude, right? Other people are like, yo, that's Elijah. Now, Elijah had been dead for centuries at this point. A lot of folks thought, hey, Jesus is this powerful prophet. Maybe it's Elijah. Come back to life. Other folks are like, no, I think it's like Jeremiah, another one of the major prophets in Israel who also had been dead for centuries. And they're like, yeah, it's probably Jeremiah. Come back to life. Then Jesus looks at the disciples, he says, yeah, but what about you? Who do you think that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, this is a bombshell moment in the gospel story. This is the first time that a human being speaks out loud that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that's been set aside from the beginning, God's own son who has come to rescue and redeem creation. Up until this point, Jesus has been saying it and hinting at it the whole time, but Peter is the first one to speak those words out loud. And this is a huge moment. Now, uh, 
it's a huge moment just because of that, right? Because of what Peter says. But there's so much more going on that I didn't learn about until just a couple of years ago. And really, I, I had the privilege of experiencing it firsthand this past year when I got to visit Israel. Uh, when we read this, we miss a couple of things because we didn't live during this time. So the fact that it says that Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, you're like, all right, cool. Like, that doesn't mean anything to us, right? Because we didn't live back then. We don't know where the cities are. Let me show you a little map. Just give us a, a little bit of an idea. Um, if you look on kind of the bottom, you'll see it says Galilee, and you've got the Sea of Galilee kind of on the right-hand side. Capernaum and Bethsaida, those are kind of the places that Jesus did most of his ministry. Most of his ministry happened on kind of that northern corner or, or side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where most of the three years, that's where he was hanging out, doing a lot of his, uh, um, of his miracles, uh, Sermon on the Mount, all that stuff happened right there. This particular time, though, it says that Jesus took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you look on the uh, kind of right-hand side, there's an arrow that goes up. You'll see Caesarea Philippi. Okay, just above Tetrarchy of Philip. So this is named after Philip. Uh, actually, the town had been called Panius. All right? Ro uh, when Greece was ruling the world, that was the name of the town. When Rome took over, it got changed to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 24 miles by foot from the region of Galilee there that Jesus walks his disciples up. So we're talking a day, day and a half journey that they take to get up there. Now, the interesting thing about Caesarea Philippi is that uh, where Jesus did most of his ministry was kind of core of Israel. It was in the northern part of Israel, but it was still very Jewish. Not that there weren't, you know, Greeks and Romans around there. Of course that there were, but it was very Jewish. When he goes up to Caesarea Philippi, it's like he's going into enemy territory. It is thoroughly Roman. The reason that Caesarea Philippi had been called Panius and in modern day, is actually called Banius, which is kind of an Arab translation of Panius, is because it was on this site in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus uh, goes and takes his disciples where the temple of Pan was. All right, Pan was a Greek god. Uh, if you remember your Greek mythology, he was half man, half goat. He was kind of the god of the wild and the mountains and known as a very erotic a sexual God. Um, there is a reason that he's half man, half goat. It actually had to do with the worship at the temple. Let your minds run wild, and that's what it means. Pan had his temple placed over this massive rock uh, um, cave. Um, take a quick look at this picture. This is what it would have looked like when Jesus brought his disciples there. Okay, In the middle, you actually have a temple to Zeus. You have some other worshiping areas on the right-hand side. Then you will see carved right into the rock right there is actually uh, what they call the Grotto of Pan. And then on the left side is the actual Temple of Pan. And you can see a cave in the back of it. You see that kind of cave area in the back? That's what Jesus and his disciples would have experienced. Jesus takes his disciples. This is kind of like the red light district. This is... Uh, uh, Las Vegas, what, stay, what happens in Panius stays in Panius, all right? Unless you, like, hooked up with a goat that had a disease, and then whatever happened in Panius got brought back home with you, all right? That's what it was. I mean, we're talking, this was some nasty, gnarly stuff. They had animal sacrifices there. They even had human sacrifices there. And the reason that they did it, in fact, they often did infant sacrifices there, was because in the back of that cave, there's actually a huge spring that comes up. 
The spring is so powerful and deep that the ancients couldn't even find how deep it was. They thought that it had no bottom. In fact, they believed that that was the gate of Hades. That was like the river Styx. That's where the gods went in the wintertime. And so they would have these sacrifices to try to coax them back out, especially around the spring. They needed them to come back out for fertility, for babies, for crops, for all that. And what they would do is they would throw the sacrifice into these raging waters. And if the water sucked the sacrifice down and they didn't see it again, they believed that the gods had accepted the sacrifice. But if the sacrifice was battered around and blood flowed out in the springs, they believed that the gods had not accepted the sacrifice. Jesus takes the disciples to this place where he knows Peter is going to identify him as the Messiah. Why does Jesus go all the way up there into enemy territory, into a place that would have felt reprehensible to the disciples and even to us in our modern ears? Why does he take them up there? Uh, I want to show you a quick little video. This is when I was able to visit this site uh, last year. You'll see Brenda at the end of it. Oh, sorry, can you go back? Yeah, that's actually the cave Real quick, that's the cave that backed up. Now, some of the cave has actually fallen in, so it's not as big as it used to be. And uh, you can't tell how much of the spring is coming up anymore, and it's not as much as it used to, but it's still there. You'll see that in just a second. Go ahead and show that quick video. So what you're looking at now is where the Temple of Zeus would have been. Then it comes around. You can still see a lot of the, the ruins. You'll see some stuff carved in the side there. That's the the grotto of Pan right there, and then you see the cave, and just over there, just over past Brenda, <laughs> is actually where the uh, temple of Pan would have been. Now you see that river flowing out? That's all from the spring. In fact, this is uh, one of the main headwaters of the Jordan River. It's where the Jordan River actually begins, right there. Jesus brings his disciples there because he knows what Peter's going to say. Let's continue reading and see what Jesus says. Let's read verse 16 again. It says, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's his name, Simon, okay? We don't usually call him Simon because of what happens right here. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, no human being revealed this to you. He says, But by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. See, we call Simon Peter, we call him Peter most of the time in the New Testament. This is when Jesus actually gives him that nickname. Peter just means rock, okay? And as you can see, they're on a very big rock right now. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, on you, I will build my church, my temple, my assembly, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Does that bring a different perspective now when you hear that passage read? Jesus takes the disciples into enemy territory, into the place where evil almost is birthed to the very gates of Hades. And Peter, at that place, announces for the first time publicly that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe. And Jesus says, Peter, rock on you. I'm going to build my church. 
Not on a rock like this where they're building these fake temples. And he says, and not even the gates of hell, which were literally right there, the ancients believed. He says, not even that with all the water rushing out is going to be able to stop it, is going to be able to hold it back. Jesus, friends, was a church planter. And Jesus planted some hardcore churches. Jesus didn't mess around. I love this passage when I actually read it in context because I understand it more. Jesus is like, yo, we're going to go to the very place that's darkest. Where everybody thinks the underworld is to the very gates of hell. And I'm going to plant my church on you, Peter. We're going to plant it and not even the gates of hell are going to be able to hold us back. We're charging in to save the world, to save these people, these children, all of it. We're going to redeem it and restore it. This is what he wants them to do. But then it's weird because he's like, but don't tell nobody. Like, come on, man. All right, we'll skip ahead a little bit to another really, really important passage you've heard a bunch of times. We're going to read it really quickly. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, if we flip over there, we'll start reading in verse 18. What we often call the Great Commission. He says, then Jesus came to them. This is right before he leaves and goes to heaven. He gathers his disciples. He's been crucified, buried, resurrected. He's been hanging out with the disciples probably about 40 days. He's just about ready to leave to go back to heaven. He gathers them all together and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, everywhere, all of it is mine. All the authority, the authority in heaven, the authority on earth, the stuff you can see, the stuff you can't see, I'm in control, I have it all. He says, it's been given to me, and then he says, therefore, in other words, because of that, because I have all the authority everywhere, I'm telling you to go and make disciples of all nations. We often kind of stop there, we're like, that's what Jesus was about. He wants us to go make disciples. Yes, but continue reading because there's context we often miss. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about setting up churches. You're like, I've never heard that before. Yeah, because us pastors haven't always done a great job of explaining it. And because you're all, I think, most of you at least, are Americans which means you grew up in an individualistic uh, culture and country where we always think everything is about us. And what Jesus is saying here is, I didn't just come here with all this authority to tell you to just go and get people to heaven. I want you to not only make disciples by telling them the good news about my death and resurrection, but I want you to baptize them into this family. And then I want you to teach them everything that I've commanded you. Jesus goes up to heaven The disciples go to Jerusalem for 40 days. They're praying. They're waiting for this Holy Spirit that Jesus has promised. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Woo, this is getting good. And who is it that preaches the very first gospel invitation? Peter, in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches to all these folks when the Holy Spirit comes, just as Jesus said when he was in Caesarea Philippi. Peter preaches, and the church is born. People say, how do we repent? We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They repent, and then they get baptized. And after they get baptized, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that there's four things that all of the people begin to do in that first church. 
It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the, the, the koinonia, the, the meeting, the gathering together, to the breaking of bread, which is a, an idea of them eating, but especially communion, and to prayer. That's what the early church did. In fact, on that first day on Pentecost, 3,000 people come to Christ. The first church is born, and it's a mega church. Crazy. They're meeting in the temple time after time. They're actually doing these four things together, just as Jesus said. And then the rest of the New Testament is how the church then is beating down the very gates of hell. It's getting sent out by person after person. It starts off with Philip as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. And then Paul gets in on the action along with Barnabas and Priscilla and her husband and Apollos and Timothy and Epaphroditus and so many more. And what are they doing? They're being sent out to plant churches. In fact, Paul actually writes two letters. He writes a letter to the church in Colossae, and he writes a letter to the church in Rome, and he's never visited either one of those churches. He didn't plant them. A lot of times we think, oh, all the New Testament churches Paul planted. No, Paul goes to these places like Corinth. Priscilla becomes a believer, and her husband Aquila. They wind up moving with Paul to Ephesus. They're one of the main people helping plant the church in Ephesus. We know that also in Ephesus, a dude named Epaphroditus becomes a, a follower of Jesus, uh, actually, I'm not 100% sure if it's enough, so I think so. But either way, he gets sent out. He goes to Colossae. He's the one who plants the church in Colossae. We don't, we don't have any record of Paul ever going, and yet Paul writes a letter to that church. Why? Because churches were planting churches, and churches were sending other people out to plant more churches. That's what the whole New Testament is actually talking about. That's what it's calling us to do. This is the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples, and it's also the mission that he's giving to us. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we were really rethinking like our values and our mission statement. And we don't talk a whole lot about our mission statement. In fact, if I were to ask you, what, what's TLC's mission statement? Most of you wouldn't be able to tell me. That's not a failure on your part. If any place, it's a failure on my part. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more about it. And I'll be honest, I'm not a huge mission statement kind of guy. All right? Like they're fine and all. But I don't care about the statement. I care about the mission. I want us doing the thing that we're supposed to be doing. That's the only reason that a mission statement is maybe helpful. And our mission statement is simply this. We are a multiplying church helping the next generation fall in love with Jesus to create better futures. Today we're talking about the multiplying piece, quite honestly, because it's probably one of the hardest pieces and it's the thing that's going to require the most action on our part. Now, God is still planting TLC. We're like three and a half years old. Like, we're babies, okay? We're like infants. Maybe we're teenagers. I don't know. But we're somewhere in that ballpark, okay? God's still planting us. There's still work for us to do. There's work for you to do in this church as it's planted. But God doesn't want to grow us and multiply us here simply for our sake. God wants to do that because he wants to see the gospel go out. And his plan for seeing the gospel go out and the world restored and redeemed is that we send people out to plant more churches. That's why we say we're about creating culture-creating leaders to send to culture-creating cities to create culture-creating churches. That's what we want to be about. This, friends, is not the jump. We're not planting a church tomorrow. This, friends, is the conversation between friends so that we won't wuss out when the time comes. This isn't a new idea. <laughs> we're not the first to think about it. We're not cool because we came up with it. We didn't. It's a Jesus idea. And Jesus has great ideas. 
All right? It's Jesus' idea. It's what he wants to do. He wasn't interested in saving people just to get them to heaven. He was interested in saving people so they could be with him. You want to know how you be with Jesus? You gather as Jesus' body in a local church. Not only that, but Jesus knew that it's incredibly effective in seeing the kingdom move forward. And people who are far from Christ find Jesus. And people who are maybe just kind of chilling out in their faith actually get on fire for their faith. Because we need you. If you don't do something, the church falls apart. It doesn't work. It doesn't go anywhere. I could share all kinds of statistics of what researchers say and see. and I don't even care. You can go online. You can Google that. Find that yourself. I'm just telling you, Jesus' ideas are good ideas. Jesus' ideas are effective ideas. And Jesus' ideas are exciting ideas. Friends, if you've been here the last three years, you've seen some of the testimonies we've experienced in baptisms other testimonies that you've seen up on the screen, stories that I've been able to share of people's lives that are getting transformed and continue to happen. Friends, man, I want to be a part of a church like that. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be a part of a church where we're just doing the stuff to do the stuff. I want to be in a church where like, people's lives are literally being transformed, mine included. That's, that's the good stuff, right? Come on now. All right, enough. Though, um, when I was in middle school, I was a terrible student. Just being honest. Uh, I graduated high school with like a 2-4 something. Okay? I don't even know if I had that good of a GPA when I was in middle school. Uh, I was, though, in this special, uh, it was called a magnet program, like a gifted student program. Problem was is that I was like one of the worst kids in the class. And at the end of, actually about three-quarters of the way through eighth grade, they would, uh, the, the, the two math teachers would get together and they would kind of decide who was going to be in Algebra 1 next year as a freshman and who was going to be in pre-algebra. Well, of course, you didn't want to be in pre-algebra because that meant you were one of the dumb kids, right? You want to be put in Algebra 1. And so I remember I was like, I don't know why I was hoping I was going to get an Algebra 1. Like, I wasn't even near the top half, okay? I was way at the bottom. And my teacher came and said, yeah, you're going to be in pre-algebra next year. And I remember going to her, and I was like, oh, come on. You can make me, like, put me in in Algebra 1. I really want to be in Algebra 1. She's like, no, like, I think you really need pre-algebra. So I went back to her a second time, and I was like, come on. I know I can do it. Like, I'll show you. I'll work really hard these last number of weeks, and I know I can do it. And this is what she said to me. She said, the issue isn't your brain power. It's your willpower. The issue isn't your brain power. It's your willpower. And she was true. She was right. I just didn't do homework. I didn't study for tests. I I didn't practice the equations like it was not an issue of brain power it was an issue of willpower look god's done some beautiful powerful awesome exciting things here at this church and he's not done doing them but he's not going to do them without our participation if we want to turn the world upside down that's what they actually accused the early church planters they actually in acts 17:6 they call them in before this this judge, and, and they get accused of being the people who are turning the world upside down. Woo! Wouldn't that be awesome if they could say that about us? We turn the world upside down for Jesus in our love, in our sacrifice, and the way that we shared with others. Man, I want that to be said of us. But if that's going to happen, friends, it's not going to be because we lack understanding. It's not going to be because we lack the brain power. It's going to be because we lack the willpower. Friends, we have 
We have to do this with each other. It's going to be hard. It's going to cost you something. Some of you sitting in here right now are going to be asked by God to leave what you're doing and go plant another church somewhere. Some of you are going to be asked to sell things that you have and give the money to help plant the church. Some of you are going to be asked to step out of your comfort zone and serve at a higher capacity. It's going to cost all of us something. And that can be incredibly scary. Fact, truth of the matter is, that can be scary as hell. And I don't say the word hell to swear. I say the word hell because that's exactly where Jesus took the disciples, the very gates of hell. And he says, as scary as this is, friends, the church is kicking down the gates and we are going to rescue this world. And that's what we have to be about. So here's what I want to do as we close. I don't know where you're at right now, okay? But I want you to spend a little bit of time just talking with God because there's three options. I think on a scale of one to three, you might be a one. You're not sure what the big deal is in seeing the church multiply. Like, eh, whatever, man. I don't know if the church is actually that great of a thing for society or... I just am not sure that it's that big of a deal. I don't know that I, I really care. Okay, I'm not, don't raise your hand like it ain't none of that. This is just you and God. So you just be honest with yourself where you're at. Maybe you're a two. You want to see the church grow, but you're nervous about what it might actually require. Maybe you're a three. You're totally bought in. This is for the folks that uh, would call themselves owners here at TLC. You're like, yo, we're going to do this. We're going to make this happen. Okay, figure out where you're at right now. Just you and God. One, two, or three. So I've got a little bit of homework for each number. If you're a one, you don't get out of this scot-free. <laughs> I got something for you. This is all I want you to do, though. I just simply want you to take a piece of paper, write this little prayer on it, and tape it up in your shower, right? Because every single one of you, hopefully, showers at least once a day, okay? So you're going to pray this prayer when you shower. Just a really simple prayer. Say, Jesus, if you're real... God, I want to I know you a little more. I want to love you a little bit more. Because if you begin to fall in love with Jesus, he'll begin to help you fall in love with the things that he cares about. And if that is one of the things he cares about, then he'll start to do that in your heart. But give him the opportunity. That's all it is. It's just saying, all right, if you're real, if that's really you, then help me love you a little bit more. Help me love the things that you love. If you're a two, I simply want you to ask a neighbor or coworker that doesn't go to church if there's something anything that you can pray for them about this week, okay? Fairly simple. It's a small little step in, okay? Not a massive cost. Most people are pretty cool if you pray for them. They're not going to be too angry with you. Don't be like, I'm praying that your soul doesn't rot in hell. Like, that's not the prayer you want to, you want to say like, hey, I'm praying that God will bless you. And I just wanted to know if there's anything going on that you, you would mind if I prayed for you about. And then if you're really bold, you can ask to pray for them right there on the spot. Maybe that's a 2.5. Now, if you're a three, here's your homework, okay? Totally bought in. These are the folks that call themselves owners here. You're like, yo, I'm not just a renter at TLC. I'm an owner. Like, I, I claim this place is my own. This is what I'm about. All right, you guys, your homework is to strike up a spiritual conversation with a friend or a coworker. Maybe in the same way. Maybe you're just going to say, hey, is there something I can pray for you about? And then I want you to invite that person to church. Like, what? 
I'm going to invite him to church. It's COVID, Torin. Yeah, I know it is. I'm very well aware. I got the mask on my arm. I'll put it on in just a minute. You hate it. I hate it too. Nobody's going to come to church with me. You don't know that. You have no idea where people are in your life, the things that maybe they're walking through, going through. This whole season has actually unmasked a lot of difficulty, pain, hurt, trauma in people's lives. And there are people that are waiting for someone to have a spiritual conversation with them, waiting, wondering if God is real. They're not going to make the choice or take the step on their own, but if you ask them to take the step with you, they will. Look, friends, it's up to us. This is what Jesus has called us to. This is what Jesus wants to do. And he's doing it here, and it's exciting, and he wants to do it here more and more because he wants us to send it out. Father God, we want to be that church. We want to be a church that will kick down the gates of hell with you. Jesus, I'll admit, um, it's, it's a lot easier to talk about right now than it will be a year and a half from now when we're actually trying to do the thing. But Jesus, we know, I know, that if we don't talk about it, it makes it really easy to keep pushing it back, keep making excuses. So Jesus, would you start in our hearts now? God, what are you calling us to? How do we dive in deeper? Oh, Jesus, thank you, for, thank you for reaching out in your love to us. God, thank you for the grace that you've given to me, that you've given to, to those that are here, that have accepted you. Oh, God, let us be people who willingly give that grace back out to others who need it. Jesus, we're asking for a cure for COVID. <laughs> Be with the folks in Oregon and California. Be with the folks across the world that are struggling with COVID. Uh, Jesus, help us be your hands and feet right here in GR now. We love you. Thanks for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.